We are reading together today uh, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, and we commence our reading at verse 1, page 1175, if you are using uh, the church Bible, page 1175, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul began chapter 3 with a reminder that he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus uh, for the Gentiles and he reminds them of that again as he begins chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord or of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all you. But to each one of us grace has been given, as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he, dis- when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of the Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up in him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen. We're turning now to Psalm 68. We have come to a crucial point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians as we come now to chapter 4 and verse 1. In the previous three chapters, Paul has set out a magnificent vision. In the gospel that God purposed before the world began, in the gospel that Christ realized at Calvary, in the gospel that Paul is declaring in his ministry, in this gospel, God is doing something truly remarkable. He's doing something that was previously unimaginable in that day and age among the peoples of the world. 
God in the gospel of Christ is bringing believing Jews and believing Gentiles together. He's bringing them together to live as one family. And we've seen already how this unity is there in the gospel. But how will this unity work itself out in practice when they are in church? We often have difficulty in putting theory into practice, don't we? As parents, you may well have taught your children not to slam doors, but to close them gently. And if you were to ask your child what um, they must not do as they go out through the door, they would answer, I must not slam it. And yet, one minute later, as they rush out the door, late for school, what do they do? Slam the door, and it seems even harder than ever. They find it difficult to put the theory into practice. And that's true of all of us in many areas of life. And Paul recognises that that is going to be true of the Ephesians in terms of living out this unity that they have in Christ. They're coming, you see, from different backgrounds. And the Jews and the Gentiles, they each come with their hang-ups and their suspicions about each other. And it's hard to leave behind old habits, old attitudes. And if they're going to live together as one body in Christ, they're going to need practical help. And so that, in another sense, they do not slam the door on each other. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, Paul spells out how they are to live together. Here is practical help for them uh, to overcome the differences, the divisions, the hang-ups, the suspicions that they each have from their separate pasts. And that is still true and relevant to us today, as we will see as we go through our study. Because we this morning, the Lord God in Christ has saved us from different backgrounds. And we could very easily have our hang-ups about each other. Our suspicions of each other. Old attitudes that were there in the world. And those have got to vanish now in the church. But how practically are we to live out this unity? Living out our unity in Christ is our theme this morning. And we want to see that there are four ways in which we're to do this. We're to do it, first of all, as each of us develops our Christian graces. And I want us to note that tension that there is between all of you, which Paul emphasises, for example, at the end of verse 6, he speaks about God the Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all of you. But then he goes on in verse 7 to say, but to each one of us. And so in living out this unity, there is a unity that all of us have together, but there's a unity that each one of us has to work at in order to live it out in our relationships. And so that's why I built this into the headings of our sermon this morning. Living out our unity in Christ, first of all, as each of us develops our Christian graces. We're looking now at verses 1 to 3. Attitudes always determine actions. If you have a bad attitude, 
to someone, it will manifest itself in your speech and in your actions. That's true in relationships between husband and wife, parents and children, children and parents, between brother and sister, between neighbour and neighbour, employer and employee, right across the spectrum of relationships. If a child in school has a bad attitude to its teacher, the child is likely to be rude, disobedient, rebellious, doesn't give itself to its work. And if church members at Ephesus hold on to old attitudes, Jew towards Gentile and Gentile towards Jew, then the church is not going to be a very attractive place. The church is not going to stand out. She's not going to differ from society from which she is drawn. She's simply going to mirror it. And that would be a great tragedy. And so Paul writes in verse 1, As a prisoner in the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling which you have received. He reminds them that they have a calling. A calling which changes and has changed their attitudes. Paul himself, of course, has a calling. First of all, a calling to salvation. And then Paul had a calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And to fulfill that calling, Paul, who had been a staunch Jew by birth and upbringing, he had to adopt a new attitude to the Gentiles. They're no longer dogs. To be treated as dirty and filthy and outsiders. They are sinners who, like Paul himself, need to hear of and need to receive the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has now pursued this new attitude in Christ to the point that he is in prison for his ministry to the Gentiles. That's how much his attitude has changed. He's willing to be in prison for these people that he originally would have thought of and spoken of as dogs. Now Paul's readers in Ephesus and you and I in Carrick Fergus, we have received a calling. And our calling also is a calling to salvation. To have our sins forgiven. To be new creatures with a whole new outlook in Christ. And if you're not a Christian and you're here in church this morning, that is the calling of God to you upon your life. A calling to be saved. To come to him through Christ. To have your sins forgiven. To have your old attitudes and hang-ups and suspicions and hostilities taken away. And a whole new way of thinking and acting and speaking and living given to you. But in addition to this calling to salvation, which many of us have and which you, the non-Christian, are hearing this morning, there is a calling to belong, to belong to the church, to belong to this local congregation. And he wants you and he wants me to pursue our calling to the point that it costs us too. To the point that we would be willing to become a prisoner of Christ for the sake of one another. In other words, there's nothing that I must hold back from and say, well, that's too much to do for my fellow Christian. That's too much to give. No, we're to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. 
Now, if we're to do that, there are graces that you and I will need to cultivate. We will never do that in our own strength. We will never come to the point where we'll say, I'm willing to lose my freedom. I'm willing to lose my life for my fellow Christian. You'll never come to that by yourself. It's only by Christ's working graces in you. And look at these graces now. They're mentioned in verse 2. They're actually nouns. Though the NIV, in a very vivid way, gets the sense when it translates them as verbs. The nouns are humility, meekness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another. NIV says, be completely humble and be gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, what does that mean? What kind of attitudes, what kind of change is Christ through Paul seeking in the Ephesians and in you and me? Well, humility or lowliness is a word that was not popular in the ancient world. It was not seen as a badge of honour or as a desirable thing to be marked by lowliness in that society. Lowliness or humility means taking the place of the servant. Taking the place of the servant and recognising the value of others. And where do we see that lowliness? Where do we find that humility? We find it in the Lord Jesus Christ who came down from heaven, left his position in heaven at the Father's right hand, took a human body to himself and humbled himself to the point of death for you and I who were unworthy of even the slightest or the smallest blessing. But he did it for the forgiveness of our sins. And so he is the example of this and he is the embodiment of this humility and lowliness that you and I are to have. And so there can be no point that is too far for us to go for a fellow believer. What about meekness? Well, meekness is a word that is not in common vogue today. It's not one that's seen as a virtue today. It's seen often as, as weakness. That's not the sense. Meekness in Scripture is the idea of having all our strength and all our ability under control. It was used of a horse in those days that had been taken and trained. It had a bit put in its mouth. And now all the strength and the energy and the ability of this horse that was so dangerous now it's under control and now it can be used for the benefit and blessing of mankind. And so if you and I are meek, then all our energy, all our strength, all our ability, it will be harnessed so that you and I, we're not pushy, we're not self-asserting, we're not those who ride roughshod over people leaving a trail of devastation behind us. Rather, we use all that we have to help people, to bring them to Christ, to build them up in Christ, to see them mature in Christ. But then, Paul notes next, long-suffering. What does that mean? Well, you see, Paul recognises that this process of change is not going to happen overnight. And there are going to be times when one church member, perhaps a Jewish one, uh, rubs up a Gentile uh, member in the wrong way. And that Gentile member then is going to need to be long-suffering. It means that we, it, it, it concerns how we respond to people who aggravate us. People who annoy us. 
People who are difficult. People who are stubborn. People who are awkward. We've got to be long-suffering with them. And rest assured, within the church, we can and we are uh, often those who are difficult and stubborn. And again, we see this illustrated in the life of Jesus with the Jews. How aggravating they were. How stubborn they were. And yet we see Jesus reaching out to them and being long-suffering. Then bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. You see, when the person, the other church member, has aggravated you and annoyed you and frustrated you, what are you going to do? What are you to do? Are you to thump them with your fist? Are you to go and bad mouth them? No, Paul says, bearing with one another in love. Refusing to strike back. Refusing to be bitter towards that person, that fellow member that has annoyed you and hurt you. You're willing to overlook it. You're willing to put up with it. You're willing to to bear with people that have ideas and thoughts and perhaps they have interests in life and they, you have no, you don't have the slightest interest in their things and what they do. But you will bear with them in love because that is part of who they are. Notice how in verse 3 Paul says, make every effort. It literally is, spare no effort. To keep the unity. So if we're going to live out this unity. We've got to spare no effort. We've got to keep cultivating. These Christian graces. Humility. Meekness. Long suffering. Bearing with one another. But then secondly. Let us notice this morning. That we live out our unity in Christ. As each recognises. Our common salvation or as each recognises our shared salvation what's Paul saying here well he's speaking about the fact that there is one salvation of God in Christ that all his people participate in and we live out our unity as we recognise that we all have the same salvation in Christ. It's verses 4 to 6 that we're looking at now. And I want you to note that Paul uses the word one seven times. His list includes God in his three persons. He speaks one, of one spirit, verse 4, one Holy Spirit that is. Verse 5, of one Lord, that's one Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 6, of one Father. So there is one God. And um, this one God is three persons. That's quite difficult for us to understand. And in fact, we will never grasp it. But we believe it nonetheless. And our salvation is the work of the one God in three persons. Notice that your salvation is not the work of Christ. And I'm pausing there because I want you to have a sense of shock at that. Your salvation is not the work of Christ alone. It is the work of the triune God. Remember we saw in chapter 1 the Father elected a people in eternity. So salvation is of the Father. We saw in chapter 1 the Son redeemed that people at Calvary. So your salvation is yes of Christ. But then we saw also in chapter 1 the Holy Spirit calls that people throughout the ages of history. So your salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to grasp 
that our salvation is Trinitarian. It's not Unitarian, it's Trinitarian. Three persons who constitute one God. So that's our salvation. Well, that leaves then four remaining ones. And all four then have to do with our experience of salvation. We've seen how the gift of salvation is from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, what about then our experience of this salvation? And again, the four have to do with that. The four remaining. Let's put it like this. The one Father. What does he have? We've seen it already. One family. One Father has one family. The one Lord Jesus, what does he give us? One hope. There's not different hopes that we have. We have one hope. The hope of eternal life. He administers one baptism. There are not various baptisms in the Christian church. Whatever way baptism is administered, and to whoever it is administered, and there is difference there, it is still one baptism. And the Lord Jesus Christ creates one body. He doesn't have three or four bodies, or a hundred bodies, or a thousand bodies. He has one body. And the one spirit. What does he reveal? He reveals to you and me and to all people one Christian faith. They're not different Christian faiths. They're not various shades of Christian faith. There is one Christian faith. You see what Paul is saying here. He's saying our one salvation provided by one God brings us into one experience. The same experience. And so, we're to live out our unity. And you are to live out your unity by recognising your shared or your common salvation. I have the same salvation as Margaret as George, as Jonathan, as any other Christian throughout the world. And yes, Margaret and George and Jonathan and I, we're very different in personality. We're very different in our tastes. And we're probably different in our intellect. And we're different in perhaps our material possessions and our social status. But in salvation, we have a unity that transcends those differences. And Paul says we need to grasp that. And we need to rejoice in that. And we need to express that. And we need to maintain that. And we need to celebrate that. And whatever background a person comes from, it's not worth tuppence. It doesn't matter a hoot. As they would say. The fact that we have one salvation in Christ. That's what matters. And that's what enables us to embrace one another. Because with this shared experience. And you see if this isn't seen among us. Do you know what happens? We betray our God. Our triune God. And his salvation before a watching world. Because the world looks on and it sees us professing one salvation. But it sees us in our little groups and cliques and factions according to our backgrounds and our interests and personality and all of that. And it laughs. And it says, I see nothing of the triune God who has provided one salvation among that people. So it's important that we live out our unity in Christ 
recognizing our common salvation, each of us doing that. And then outside of our congregation and beyond our congregation, we are to uphold this unity with every Christian and every other church in our town and in our community and in our province and in our world that holds to these seven ones of Scripture in their teaching and in their practice. So if there are others who say, I have experienced, I have received the gift of one salvation from God and Christ by the Holy Spirit. And I uh, have been brought into the one family and having one hope, one baptism, one body, one faith, then I and you have got to embrace them. It doesn't matter what they believe about baptism. It doesn't matter what position they take on what is sung in worship. It doesn't matter how they organize their church, whether they have whether they have elders and are Presbyterian, or whether they are Congregationalist, or whatever, or Episcopalian, or Methodist. Those things don't matter. Where we have this commitment to one salvation, these seven ones of Scripture in teaching and in practice, we have got to reach out We've got to embrace, we've got to celebrate their presence and their witness. Let's notice then, thirdly, live out your unity. Living out your unity in Christ as each of you uses our individual gift. We're looking now at verses 7 to 12. As each of us uses our individual gift. The fact that we are all one does not mean we all are the same. That's very, very important. It's a mark of a cult that says everybody has got to be the same outwardly. We don't have to dress the same way. And as I look down over the congregation, it's one of the things that is so rich about our congregation. We don't all dress in the same way. We don't have to live in the same kind of house. We don't have to drive the same kind of car. No, as individuals, we are different. And God intends us to be that way. That's part of the richness This would be a very bland congregation if each of you dressed as I do. Or if each of you was my personality type. Or if each of you um, felt that you had to do everything in the way in which I do it. What what an, uh, an unattractive, what an ugly thing that would be. And so I say to you this morning, don't change your unique personality. I've met um, people and they don't like who they are. But they see somebody else and they admire them and then they try to talk like them. And they try to act like them. And they try to be them. And it's very ugly. It's very unattractive. It's unnatural. And in fact it's sinful. Because God has made them their unique personality. And so here now we're going to see another vital way in which we all differ. But as we all differ in this way, as in those other ways that I've mentioned, we actually enrich each other and we enrich our unity together. Look at verse 7. For Paul says, But to each one of us, grace And he's talking now about grace, not that saves. He's dealt with that already. This is now grace to serve. Grace to do. Grace to be to other people. To each one of us, grace has been given to serve, we might put it, as Christ apportioned it. 
Why am I a minister? And why is Ronnie not a minister this morning? It's not because Ronnie didn't want to be a minister and I did. It's because Christ apportioned to me the calling to be a minister. And he hasn't apportioned that to Ronnie or to any other man in our congregation except Joel who is trading for the ministry. And so Paul is saying that we each have a gift of service. Every last one of you is a Christian or who will become a Christian in the future. You are included. You have a gift from Christ with which to serve. It's unique to you. And with your use by you, with your particular personality, it will make a unique contribution to the life of our congregation. Paul teases this out in verses 8 to 10 when he shows us how and when Christ gave these gifts to his church. He says, I want you to picture a Roman general coming back from war. And that's something that they would have been familiar with. And whenever a general came back, his soldiers came behind him and then he had all the uh, the loot and booty, I should say, of war Uh, And when he arrived back in the capital city, he then had this big award ceremony. And he gave to his soldiers, each according to what they had contributed in towards the victory. But you see, here's the difference with Christ. Because Christ at his resurrection, he is like the victorious Roman general. But to whom does Christ give the loot? And the Buddha, as it were, of his victory. He gives gifts not to those who have helped him. Because we didn't contribute anything to Christ's victory at Calvary. We couldn't. But rather what has done has happened is whenever he rose again from the dead. And all that he achieved by that. He then gave gifts to you, to me. To this congregation, to every other congregation of his people, right down through all the ages until he comes again. So we actually never need to fear for the church having enough gifts to do the work. We never need to panic or to become desperate about where are we going to get ministers from. Where are we going to get elders from? Where are we going to get deacons from? Where are we going to get Sabbath school teachers from? Where are we going to get those who will go out and do witness from? We don't have to panic about that. Christ has already taken care of that. And to his people. And so he will have a saved people in every generation. And he will have a gifted people in every generation. Gifted to do the work that needs to be done in that day and in that age. Let's have confidence in our Saviour and in his victory and in his distribution of gifts to his church. And then in verse 11 he takes an example. He says, I want you to think of the teaching ministry. That lies at the very heart of the church. And Christ, at his resurrection, gifted his church with a teaching ministry. And in the era in which Paul lived, the first century, that teaching ministry was expressed in the office of apostle, and the office of prophet, and the office of evangelist. Because in that first century, The New Testament scriptures were not complete. And so apostles were needed. Who had seen the risen Christ. And who could speak of his resurrection and of his work. Until that was written down. No apostles since then. Prophets were needed. Because the apostles couldn't be everywhere. And so the prophets worked under the apostles. And they spoke the word of God 
as Christ revealed to them. The evangelists, they came in after the apostles and they defended the gospel. When the false teachers came in and tried to destroy the gospel, these evangelists, Timothy and Titus, said, no, no, that's not the gospel the apostles preached. Here's the gospel the apostles preached. So they defended it and expanded it again until the gospel was written down in all its fullness and implications. But then here's the ongoing office in the church, that of pastor and teacher. And you see the pastor and teacher is different from the apostle and prophet and evangelist. Because while that office came into being in the first century, it didn't end the first century. It continues right through until Christ comes again. And this office takes the apostolic gospel written down in the scriptures, defended by the evangelists. And the the pastor teacher opens up these scriptures and explains them and applies them to our lives. And that's what I'm doing this morning. That's my calling, to be a pastor teacher, to have an eye for individual believers, to have an eye for the whole flock, and to minister to you the word in a way that will build you up in Christ and strengthen you. That's the gift that Paul mentions in verse 11. But then here's where he takes it. Why do we have this teaching? Well, it is so that you will grow and that you will discover your gift and that you will use your gift in the church. That you may be equipped uh, to do the work uh, that Christ has set uh, for you to do. Verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service. Today is about me preparing you for works of service in this next week and the next months and the next years. So then as you serve, as you go out and live tomorrow as a Christian, as you go out tomorrow and witness as a Christian, as you minister to one another today, what's happening? Well, the body of Christ, the church, is being built up. So it isn't a one-man ministry, the church. It's about an every-member ministry. And yes, our ministry, your ministry, will all differ from one from the other. And your ministry will certainly differ from that which God has given to me in Christ. Now here's the question. Do you know what your gift is that Christ has given you? And are you using it? And are you allowing the ministry every Lord's Day to shape your life so that you go out into your home, you go out into your, into your workplace, you go out into the community and you are by your life and witness you are contributing to the growth of the church. And as you meet in the church, and as you interact with your fellow believers, you're building up the church. You see, we live out our unity as each of us uses our different gifts. Then finally this morning, and very briefly, live out your unity in Christ. Or living out our unity in Christ as each of us pursues our spiritual maturity. Yes, one aspect of the teaching ministry is to develop you in your graces and in your gifts. But here's another vital aspect, verses 13 to 16, that you will grow up and become mature Until, verse 13, we all reach unity in the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. 
That's Christ's purpose for you. Remember the pictures we had of the child. That you don't remain a baby in Christ. But that you become what the scriptures call as a man in Christ. A woman in Christ. One who is mature. One who is strong. One who is stable. One who is able to stand in the world. One who is able to work for Christ. And you see that is vital. Because, and we don't have time to go into this in in all its detail this morning, but here's the problem. Here's the danger. The world is a very, very dangerous place. Today, you're in the safest place that you can be as a Christian. This is the safest place you can be as a Christian. But it's Christ's purpose that you're only here one day in the week. The other six days of the week, you are in the most dangerous place for you as a Christian. You're in the world where there are ravenous wolves. And the devil is like a roaring lion. And to add to that, within the world out there, there are those who teach things under the name of Christ, supposedly. But they're not teaching the truth as it is in Christ. And there's doctrine that's blowing around out there like the wind. And it's like seed carried in the wind. And you see, if you're not being strengthened and built up on this day of the week, and this is why it's vital to be at worship on the Lord's day, then you're not going to be able to stand and withstand the currents that battle you out there in the world. The unchristian currents from the ungodly, but also those wrong Christian, supposedly, or so-called teaching. Look at verse 14. Be tossed and carried about by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. There are false teachers. And there is a false Christianity out in the world. And sadly, it's in churches today as well. And it is devastating. It's destroying Christians. It's like a yacht, and the Christian can be like a yacht caught in a storm on the ocean. If you're not mature, if you're just like a little yacht, you're going to be blown about all over the place. The tragic result is, if you fall victim to that, you'll be damaged, and sometimes Christians are irreparably damaged by false teaching. Churches, by false teaching, are being divided into factions and splits. And we ask, can it be avoided? Paul says, yes it can. Look at verse 15. But holding to the truth in love. Literally is, but truthing in love. Hearing the word preached in love. Seeing it lived out in love. Look at what happens. Then we grow up into him in all things who is the head, Christ. And you see, to live out our unity as a body, each of you needs to pursue individual maturity. Personal maturity. And we need to, as a group, Pursue corporate maturity. Because if we don't have that maturity in Christ, then our unity can so easily be lost. Because unity is married to truth. The truth in Christ. Let's then live out our unity by developing our Christian graces, each of us, By recognising our common salvation, each of us. By using our individual gifts, each of us. 
and by pursuing our spiritual maturity in Christ each of us. For doing that, we will continue to enjoy that blessing that we have already, united in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we marvel at what you have done for us in Christ. That you, the triune God, have given us salvation. It is a gift. And we thank you that that gift then is our shared experience. As each one of us uh, comes to Christ in repentance and in faith. Help us, Lord God, to recognize that that unity transcends every other division that has been there in our background or in our past. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to develop these graces of lowliness and meekness and patience and bearing with one another so that we will live out this unity in our relationships one with the other. We pray too that you would help us to be engaged in service because as we serve each as a part of the body then the whole body grows and is developed in its unity. And we pray Lord God that as we meet each Lord's day that we would hear your word coming from you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this place. This place of security. This place of blessing. Tomorrow we go out into a world where we are at our most vulnerable. Help us, Lord God, in that world. Help us not to be tossed and be blown about by every wind of doctrine that man pronounces, but help us rather to hold to the truth in Christ, in love, and so to maintain our unity and to be built up in our faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.